So, who are these arrogant believers in Corinth that St. Paul is calling out here in the beginning of his second essay of this letter? Throughout his first essay, he hinted at these people, so that no one may boast. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. If any man among you thinks that he is wise, let no one boast. Do not go on passing judgment. He was building up. And finally, he calls them out directly, and he says, it is the arrogant ones who I am coming to deal with. So who are they? I think it's important that we understand who these people are if we're going to understand the rest of Paul's letter. So I know we have some visitors today. We're in the middle of studying 1 Corinthians, which is composed of five essays that Paul wrote. We spent the first 14 weeks looking at the first essay, The Cross and Christian Unity, and last week we started Men and Women in the Human Family. For a quick reminder for all of us, this is the second letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We know from chapter 5, verse 9, that he had written to them before. I wrote you in my letter. So this is the, this 1 Corinthians is the second letter, and as you read through it, it becomes apparent that when he wrote his first letter, the Corinthians responded with a letter of their own, basically disagreeing with or probably even disregarding most of what Paul had to say to them, which explains the enormity of the content of this letter. This letter is a masterpiece, as we have been looking at. It's a masterpiece in writing. It's a masterpiece in composition. It's also a masterpiece of defense of Paul's theology. Obviously, he was very concerned about the influence some of the arrogant believers had over the community as a whole and the direction that influence was taking them. There were divisions among the believers, and this was something Paul found untenable, as unity is a vital aspect of Paul's understanding of Christianity. And even more problematic for Paul was that the arrogant believers were leading many to not only question Paul's Christianity, but to actually be following an alternative Christianity. We saw in this first essay that Paul was insisting that Christians should be imitators of Christ. They should look like this, servants of all. He evidenced his own life. So here's what Paul's life looked like. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And the Corinthians hated this about Paul. This was part of the reason the arrogant believers didn't think Paul was even an apostle. How could an apostle possibly live like this? And Paul evidenced his own life and said, listen, this is the proof that the power of God looks nothing like Corinthians. It is, looks nothing like the power of men. And as Christians, you should not look like Corinthians. You should look like me, Paul says, because I look like Jesus Christ. And if you draw on the old prophet who wrote this mass, this just absolutely beautiful Messianic 
prophecy. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Paul lived the same way as Jesus lived. And it was this radical disconnect between their idea of Christianity and Paul's idea of Christianity that was fracturing the community. And worse, it was redefining the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there were two glaring matters, two glaring matters among these arrogant people that were causing the main issue Paul is dealing with. And we really have to try to grasp this for Corinthians to make any sense. The first matter is, these people had completely misunderstood the concept of being spiritual people. Okay? Paul uses the word pneumatikas okay? in, in this letter for spiritual. For Paul, this word basically meant one who is filled with and governed by the Spirit of God. One who is filled with and governed by the Spirit of God. That's a spiritual person. But for these arrogant people, they understood this in a totally different way. They understood it as they themselves had become purely spiritual beings, higher than mere men. See, here's what was going on. They had taken the reality of the gifts the Holy Ghost had given them. Especially three gifts. Gifts of tongues which is why Paul has to write some fairly restrictive guidelines on this gift later on. We'll understand why he had to go that far with that. The gift of wisdom and knowledge. These three gifts, these Corinthian believers thought, made them quite literally new and improved human beings. Their thinking sort of went like this. If we can talk like angels, we must be angels. This is important to understand. Okay? They imagined that they had quite literally arrived at full redemption and had quite literally were living and were quite literally living and ruling in the full kingdom of God. <clears throat> this is the people Paul is dealing with. They had failed to grasp the now and not yet tension of Paul's theology. Redemption is certainly offered for now. And radical change can come to someone's life now. And the kingdom of God is here now. Jesus ushered that in. However, the fullness of our redemption, when we will be completely like him, and the fullness of the kingdom of God, the new heaven and new earth, is yet to come. That's the tension in scripture. Jesus started that tension. Paul continues that tension. Redemption is now, and it's yet to come. The kingdom of God is now and yet to come. But for these people, it had completely arrived. They were convinced that they were living it, living in it, ruling it. And Paul, who was still living like Jesus Christ, well, obviously he wasn't spiritual like they were. Because if he was, he would be living like they were. That's one matter, and that is important to grasp if we're going to use Corinthians. Here's the second matter. 
these people lived in a culture where the world was understood through the lens of Hellenistic dualism. And basically what that means is that we are both a physical body inhabiting a very physical world, and we are also a spiritual person with an invisible soul. And the elementary understanding of that very complex teaching is that the soul is much more important than the body, and the body doesn't mean a lot. Okay, so put those two things together. You already disregard the physical anyway, and you assume you're pretty much an angel. And already removed from the limitations of the physical world. Now you can start to see, maybe, why these people denied the resurrection of the body. That's one of the things Paul has to take up. They had total disregard for any of the sexual guidelines that Paul establishes for followers of Christ. And they had a basic lack of concern for the whole physical world. They were above these base realities. It didn't have any effect on them. They were spiritual, after all. And they were already ruling the kingdom of God. Okay? Can you see how important now this background to these people is to help us understand Paul? Paul is not dealing in this book of Corinthians with your average Joe Q public Christians struggling to live life the right way, but every now and then getting sidetracked by sin. That is not what he is dealing with. He is dealing with a community of believers, many incredibly blessed with the amazing gifts of the Holy Spirit, who have taken the gospel of Jesus Christ, the theology of the cross, have assimilated it into their own culture, have turned it into a theology of glory, and are now encouraging lifestyles that look nothing like Jesus Christ, but they are supporting them with Christian theology. You see how much that changes what Corinthians says to us? These are not some folks like you and I struggling with sin in our lives. These are people teaching that the way they live, they're supposed to live that way because of their theology. It changes the book. It opens the book completely to different applications and different helps in our lives. Teaching Christian lifestyles with Christian theology. That should sound familiar if we are paying any attention at all to the world around us. And if we are courageous enough, it should sound way too familiar if we're paying attention to our own lives. <coughs> Gordon Fee. 
By bringing good news to the poor through his son, God has forever aligned himself with the disenfranchised. At the same time, he has played out before our eyes his own overthrow of the world's false standards. Every middle class or upper class domestication of the gospel is therefore a betrayal of that gospel. Ouch. Remember way back 15 weeks ago when I said this is going to be one of the most challenging journeys we take? Paul's letter to the Corinthians could easily be titled Paul's letter to the Christians in America. See, Paul is now going to start addressing certain issues that have arisen in the Corinthian church. A guy sleeping with his stepmother. Gluttony at the communion table. Drunkenness at the communion table. Abuse of the poor, both at the communion table and in society at large. By Christians. Participating in feasts for other gods. Chaos at worship services, etc., etc., etc. If we do not have a handle on what is behind all of this behavior, self-imagined, super-spiritualized, absolutely correct on Christian doctrine people, then we are going to misread Paul and reduce his theology to nothing but a course on Christian morals and ethics. And that is not decidedly what 1 Corinthians was ever intended to be about. And yet it's the one book that we love to point to when we're doing our judging of others. And worse than reducing it to a book on Christian morals and ethics, we will read into Paul the exact opposite of what he is getting at. Mainly, Christians should look like this. This is what Christians should look like. Servants of all through self-sacrificial living out grace, mercy, and forgiveness. In fact, the verses we are looking at this morning are a perfect example on how Paul can be read in two completely different ways. We can read this, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Out of context of this understanding of the Corinthians and who he was writing to, you can read this and you can imagine Harry Potter taking on Voldemort at his own game. The power of the wand. You can certainly read it and think it's Dirty Harry taking on the bad guys and the power of the gun. But that is reading a concept into Paul and into this text that is not even there. That is reading into this text our own human desire for vengeance and human power. It is reading our own theology of glory into a text that was written to defend the theology of the cross. Witherington can help us here. It's a long quote, but it's worth trying to access it. For Paul, God's scandalous activity on the cross sets up a persuasive paradox that not only reverses the destiny of humankind, that's redemption, but also transvalues the very categories by which one evaluates people. 
God vindicates human powerlessness and humiliates merely human power. I love that line. Human power put God to death. And all that happened that day was it was humiliated as useless. This is what Paul's counter-order wisdom of the cross is all about. And it is radical enough that, if taken seriously, it will require the Corinthians to give up many of the dominant values and presuppositions of their culture about power and wisdom. Paul's message here profoundly disturbs the social norms that the Corinthians appear to take for granted. I'm going to read the center of this quote again. I'm going to change one word. This is what Paul's counter-order wisdom of the cross is all about, and it is radical enough that, if taken seriously, if taken seriously, it will require the American Christians to give up many of the dominant values and presuppositions of their culture about power and wisdom. Paul's message here profoundly disturbs the social norms that the American Christians appear to take for granted. To see Paul here as just another oppressive, patriarchal power broker totally misunderstands the character of this material. Wow. Paul spends his entire first essay establishing that God's power looks like this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul looks like this. And the entire setup for the rest of the letter is all about this. Why then would he suddenly reject all of that and embrace the opposite? He doesn't. Remember, he has used this metaphor about his own life. That he is at the end of the procession, the prisoner in chains, on his way to be put to death. He wrote it clearly to the, to the Galatians like this. I mean the Philippians. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is what Paul's life was about. Self-sacrificial giving. The entire first essay was about this. And suddenly, we want to read them as though this is Paul? Please. Paul knows the power of God to save and restore and transform lives is found in the cross. Follow me, Jesus said. And when he pointed to the scars in his hands, he said to his disciples, This is why the Father sent me, so send I you. I missed that verse in Sunday school. I missed the entire first essay of Paul when I used to teach on Corinthians before. Yes, Paul is going to go and he's going to find out about these arrogant people and their power. Because this is what he's saying. I am, oh, sorry. He's saying basically, I am coming and God's power looks like this. I look like this. Do you? Fee writes, 
The gospel of Christ crucified in all of its apparent weakness is nonetheless the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Paul is not challenging the arrogant, therefore, on their grounds, but his own. What their present stance lacks is the true power of the Spirit, which gives people birth to new life in Christ, which can change people's lives, which can make people look and live like Jesus Christ. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. Corinthian Christianity has devolved in a very short time into a Christianity of words, but no real power. No one really living like Jesus Christ. No one. Sometimes I feel as though my Christianity is more Corinthian than Christian. More words than actions. I am often not a very good husband. I am often a very impatient dad. I tend to hate my enemies rather than love them. I tend to seek justice rather than mercy. And I tend to hold bitterness rather than offer forgiveness. Oh, I've got the words. Sometimes even maybe the correct words. I've passed all the tests. But I often find myself no closer to living life that is a genuine imitation of Jesus Christ than I was before I even knew the words. Maybe that's why Christianity America tends to be about do you believe the correct thing? Never about, do you look like Jesus Christ? It's easier that way. Words. Words, words. But the kingdom of God does not consist in words. Maybe if words are all we have (coughs) to point to as proof of our Christianity... If we do not have any real power in our lives to live out limitless grace, unadulterated mercy, unconditional forgiveness, and unrestrained love through self-sacrificial living, I have trouble sacrificing for people I love. God sacrificed for people he hates. I'm sorry. God sacrificed for people that hated him. If words are all we have, then perhaps we should examine our own definition of what it means to be spiritual, of what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes I'll read these blog postings by Christians. And halfway through, long before they even get to the end of their argument, 
they've already destroyed their argument just by the way they're writing. Even if what they say might be correct. What God, what spirit really fills us? What God, what spirit really governs us? If it's Jesus Christ, I think it will make us look like this. 